0: Now, if I can, I want to get into uh, this word I got from the Lord. See, I started out getting, and I'll come back to this a moment, from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a message on outreach. And it's framed on these three pieces that Micah says to the people of his time. He said, The Lord has shown you, O humanity. The word is Adam. It's used in the Garden of Eden. The Lord has shown you all humanity What is good and what does the Lord require of you that you act justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with the Lord your God? And I looked at these three components and I thought that that is the message on outreach that I don't want to preach because I suffer from what some call compassion fatigue. It happens when you care for so many people so much of the time that you don't have enough boundaries or enough margins in your life. You're constantly giving, 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 and finally you're tired. So when I felt that the Lord said, you need to speak to the church about outreach, I thought, oh man, really? I mean, I know we should do this, but That's all people hear about. It's you're not this involved and you're not giving enough money. And and I'm thinking, I mean, Bono is so yesterday, right? That we don't need another message on this kind of stuff. So I'm stumbling along through Mark chapter 6 and I run into the disciples' conversation with Jesus and the phrase that jumped off the page, you guys, was when Jesus said to them, you feed them. And in the original language, the you is emphatic, so one person translates it, you, I mean you, you should feed them. You have to put it in its context. Way back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus called his disciples that they would come to him. And Mark 3 says he called them for two reasons. One, that they might be with him, and the other is that he might send them out these two things that we gather where Jesus is and he develops us and then he sends us out into the world as his servants seem to go back and forth throughout the Gospels. If you read all four Gospels in slow motion, you'll see them played again and again. He's always gathering his people, and then he's always sending them out. And people like me, we are naturally inclined to gather. We love it when Jesus calls a meeting, because we come to it with all kinds of questions and deep thoughts. But when Jesus says, now I want you to go out in my name, into the world, that's hard for us because either we're introverted like I am by nature or you've been a Christian so long you don't know any sinners anymore. So you're like, I don't even know how to do that but I sure like to gather. But if I only gather but I don't learn how to be sent out then it doesn't matter how good my answers are or how deep my thoughts They don't do anybody any good, now do they? Other people have the opposite problem. We love to be sent out. We see every encounter as the opportunity for a new friend. You have all kinds of friends, and tons of them are sinners. And you love to be with them, but you don't like to pull away and be alone with Jesus. See, and if we don't learn to pull away from our send, 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 and be alone with Jesus, then our answers will become shallow. The only real answers we'll have are answers we stole from somebody's book who actually was alone with Jesus. So we have to always walk these two things, don't we? These two are always in tension, aren't they? I'm pulling you aside to gather you, and then I'm sending you out that you might heal the sick, cast out the demons, and preach in my name so that's what's happening in Mark chapter 3 he pulls them so they might be with him and so that he might send them out and so in Mark chapter 6 that's what he does he sends them out they've just been with him now for the last three or four chapters and it's time to go out and so he sends them two by two and you know what they did they went out and they preached that everyone should repent and believe in his name and they began to heal many people by anointing them with oil and they cast out demons in his name so they're doing exactly what jesus told them to do and they're wildly successful so jesus finally says to them in mark chapter 6 verse 30 look you guys are tired you've had enough you're worn out, man. Everywhere you go, it's people, people. You know, you heal people, and there's only more people. So, what he says in verse 30 is, You need to come away and be with me to a quiet place and get some rest. Man, that sounds good. It's compassion fatigue. They've been healing and preaching, and they're like, We need some time away. With we need boundaries, we need margins. And so he pulls them away in Mark chapter six, and they get in a boat and they go to to another part of the lake where they can be alone. But what they don't know is the people, the crowd that they've just been healing, discovers where they're going, and they get there ahead of them. And so when they dock the boat and they get ready to get some rest to practice these margins, they run into the very crowd they were just trying to avoid. It sort of reminds me of the movie, What About Bob? (laughs) The psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin, he's a professional. He does this for a living. He's written a book, Baby Steps, happens to have a few million copies on his shelves. And then a young compulsive narcissist comes into his office named Bob. Bob Wiley, and he's got problems, and they're many-layered, and they're really complex. And he sits in Dr. Marvin's office, and the professional starts to give him professional advice, but it's not really helping Bob. Finally, Dr. Marvin says, I need to go away on vacation for a month, away from Bob. And when he gets on vacation with his family, he doesn't know it, but Bob found out where they were going on vacation, and he shows up. And he crashes Dr. Marvin's vacation for a month. He lives with him for a month. Everything that Dr. Marvin tries to do to create boundaries, Bob keeps crashing. They have a birthday party for Dr. Marvin. Bob shows up. His kids want to go swimming. Bob's the one that teaches them how to swim. Good Morning America is going to come and do an interview in his living room on his brand new book. Bob sits on the set and steals the show. They want to go sailing. Bob is at the front of the ship like he's Tom Hanks or something. Everywhere they go, it's Bob. By the end of the movie, Bob is almost normal and Dr. Marvin is almost losing his mind. And that's when it occurs to you that the problem is not just Bob, the problem is Dr. Marvin. He's a professional. He's a psychiatrist. He knows how to do this. He has office hours. He has boundaries. He has structure. And as long as people fit within that structure, he can help them, he thinks. But he is not prepared when people interrupt his private moments. So when he sees the crowd, Jesus is moved with compassion because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's not a slogan, it's an Old Testament idiom that means people are drifting and no one is looking for them. They're hurting each other, they're in a chaotic state. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees people and when you see them, you don't just recognize them, you can look right through them. You know what is wrong and you know why it's wrong. And you don't tell yourself, I ought to have compassion. No, your heart just runs off with you before you can do anything about it. Now the disciples have a completely different track. What they say is, Jesus, it's late in the day. Listen to the language. Send these people away so they can buy themselves something To eat. That's when Jesus said, you feed them. One more time, it's emphatic. No, you feed them. And the disciples are like Dr. Marvin. They know how ministry works. They know how to preach. They know how to heal and how to cast out demons. But they always do it on their terms, in their hours, when they feel like doing it. But here is a moment where they have pulled away to be with Jesus and now the crowd is crashing the party. And they say, you know what? The office is closed. Send them away. Have them get something for themselves. And Jesus says... You feed them. Now, listen to what they say. What? Eight months' wages would not feed these people. Listen to the language now. You want us to spend that much money on them to eat? What about the margins, Jesus? What about our precious time away? What about boundaries? I'm not telling you boundaries are not important. They are important. I'm simply telling you that you were not made for boundaries. Boundaries were made for you. This is what's the word of the Lord for me. You can plan time away. You can plan to be alone. But people happen whether you're ready or not. And if you cannot deal with people when they happen, you are just a professional. Most of the time, people need friends. And friends are always available. You will always have to sort out the difference between real ministry and more, and you will, I don't know, I can't write the formula for you. I'm just telling you, you will always be resetting your boundaries every few months or there's something wrong. This was the word. So Jesus says, all right, how much do you have? They said, we have um, five loaves. Oh, yeah, and two fish. He says, all right, have the people sit down in circles, make it 100 or 50. Some social scientists can tell you the importance of sitting 20,000 people down into huddles instead of masses. There is a lot more happening here than just the feeding of the mouth. There are connections, there's community being formed. Have them sit down in circles of 100 or in 50 and then bring me your bread. And Jesus takes those five loaves and two fish and he blesses it. And when he opens his eyes, they start. What he says to them is, Here now, you. He doesn't say, Get out of the way, I'll feed them. He says, Here now, you feed them. See, sometimes the problem with Bob is Dr. Marvin, and sometimes the problem with the crowd is actually the disciples. Are you still there? So I don't know, maybe you like me feel the compassion fatigue. Maybe you feel like you've heard the whole reach out, outreach stuff long enough and you don't need any more gimmicks to get you interested. So as far as I can get you today is simply to say, are you willing to take what little you can do, even if it seems irrelevant, and are you willing to say, I don't know how this is going to help anybody or fix anything, but it's the one thing I know to do and Lord, here I'll do it. And just ask him to multiply it and ask God to figure... You don't have to figure everything out in order to make a difference. You really don't. And you don't have to be a hero either. You just have to have a little in you already do. Would you pray with me? And then I'm going to get to the message. Father, for all of those people who feel like I do this morning, that I am so tired and thin and spread out in so many directions... And now we find ourselves listening to your voice saying, really, have people come and tried to get to me and I wouldn't let it happen? Have I walked away from conversations I should have stayed in? Have I given them just a little when I could have given them all? And I pray that you would not only forgive us, but that you would take our fatigue and you would give us life. Give us energy. I don't know how we're going to get it, but you... Can multiply. Will you do that for us? In Jesus' name, and people said together, Amen. Amen. Let's get to the message. So, I was looking at these three words, justice, compassion, and righteousness, and I was asking myself, you guys, um, why, uh, what is wrong with our society? I mean, what about Bob, right? Why do we have so many Bobs? Uh, we in Marion, in the Grant County area, we have 120 plus nonprofit organizations. No, listen to the math, who are, who are built around the idea of giving something to somebody else, either free or really cheap. And yet, in the Marion community, we have the highest poverty rate in the state of Indiana and we have four out of five children that are in the public schools come from single homes and so I'm asking myself how is it that we have all of these agencies that exist for helping people do better and yet we still have so many problems. If my math is right, we have one nonprofit organization for every 239 people in the city of Marion alone. You start to see the issue here. And it, this is writ large across the world. We have somewhere between 10 and 30,000 nonprofit organizations in Haiti and they only have 10.3 million people, and it's still Haiti. So you're asking yourself, how can you have all of these organizations built to do all of these things, and it doesn't seem to be changing the culture Really? So I went back to this Mica formula, and I started thinking, much like you are, what we have to do is we have to practice justice, compassion, and righteousness. First, let me define it really, really fast. Justice in the Old Testament language is not lining something up with the law. In Old Testament parlance, justice is largely associated with relationships. See, in the American culture, justice is the practice of the law. You find out what's wrong, you apply the law, you make it right, and you move on. But in the Old Testament mind, justice has not been reached until the person himself or herself finds themselves in a better situation. Justice in the Old Testament simply means that one keeps the obligations put upon them by whatever relationship they are in. So even after we apply the law, we haven't achieved justice until we've shown kindness and compassion and love. It's not the cold law making everybody obey. So this is all about looking at systems and structures and traditions and biases and taboos and saying, what is happening in our society that is holding people down, and how do we restore them to the place where they could be? The second word is compassion. The word literally is said in the Old Testament and it means loving kindness or faithfulness and loyalty and so compassion is not simply charity compassion in the biblical mind is loving another person like you love yourself you find yourself bound up into humanity whether you are a slave or a free, a woman or a man, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile whatever you are You are showing compassion because you see the other person as an extension of yourself. It's never condescending. It's always, you belong to me. We are bound up in humanity together. Now how can I love you and serve you? It isn't just handouts. And righteousness in the Old Testament is the practice of holiness, of goodness, Of integrity the phrase that is used in Micah is walk walk humbly with the Lord your God righteousness becomes the private morality the integrity the furnace that makes everything else in our lives possible are you with me please say you are I can't do that again so I looked at these three words like you are right now. And I was thinking maybe this is part of our answer for Bob. And then I started to think of another way to look at them. I started to see them like this. Justice, compassion, righteousness. And I started thinking that in the middle of this, where you see this nexus It is the place where all three of these things are coming together to change not only Bob, but his situation. And maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, You feed them. Do something for them. Do something with them that will change their situation. Now when I looked at this, I started to notice almost immediately that while these three things are separate, I mean they seem to be their own entity. For instance, righteousness is what God is doing in me. Compassion is what God is doing through me for the people out there. And justice is what God is doing through me for the systems that enslave people who are out there so these while they're integrated they're really three different things but they're integrated and our tendency in society is to keep them separate so what we tend to do is we look at our local churches there's like a hundred in Grant County there's like eight, ten Wesleyan churches in Marion alone. It's like Mecca for the Wesleyan church. And we tend to say to the churches in our community here, you guys do the righteousness stuff, worship God the way you want, love Him however much, but keep it within the confines of your building. And as long as you do, we'll all get along. And then we give to the nonprofit organizations, the 120 some the job of compassion. We say, you come alongside them and mentor them and teach them and give them money and take them shopping and buy them Christmas and be there when they're having hard times. And then we give to jobs that are largely government-funded the role of righteousness and say, and your job is to create a fair and open system. But see, our problem is that we tend to separate these things And when we separate these things, each one of them becomes powerless. The righteous people in church become legalistic until they run into sinners who can help them figure their theology out. And when compassion does its own thing without teaching righteousness it's no longer the whole in the gospel it's the whole gospel So we have people funneling money and giving tons of hours to causes that they truly believe in but it isn't changing things because the people that they're helping are not fundamentally being changed and we've not affected the systems yet. So it just keeps creating more people who need compassion. And when people take to the streets injustice and they call for right causes and we won't have it anymore and this is our line in the sand and this is what we believe in and we want our rights and our dignity, all of the nation looks at them and says, we believe in your cause, but you don't seem very righteous. You're angry, you're critical, you're condescending. So what happens is, when these three components are separated, each one is rendered powerless and unable to change Bob. Take a break, I am. All right, are you ready? What is needed then is a way to integrate them. If I were standing up today in front of a civil society, in front of the courts or in front of businesses downtown, I would start here and I would preach hard on the need for righteousness. But I am not. Today I am in church. And so I need to speak to the righteous about practicing compassion and practicing justice. The way to practice compassion is to go see the crowds. And remember, you haven't seen them just because you look at them. You see them when you have spent time with them. And you start to understand not only what they're doing, but why they are doing it. Listen to me. I'm not telling you, you should change your convictions. I'm just saying, they're not mature convictions yet. Until they're seasoned with real people and real names in real trouble. Now take your theology into that situation and you'll have something to say. And then, create a way for people to come out of the sin that you hate. So what is needed then is a way for us to practice this center. You seeing it? We have to find ways in our church to practice something that takes godly people, puts them in the presence of people in need, and yet directed toward long-term solutions that preempt future trouble or that subvert old biases. I got three. Then I'm done. One is we still are very active in Kids Hope. And we will stay active in Kids Hope. So if you want to be involved in something like this, I would encourage you to participate in Kids Hope. It, it doesn't all have to be uh, mentorship. There are other ways of being involved in this. But watch what it does. It takes people who have godly lives, who come from strong families. Right now we have about 80 to 90 people in Kids Hope. We want to get way more. We ask principals in the school to identify for us high-risk needs and then we assign a mentor with that child we say you pick the child we'll pick the mentor put them together for more than a year and they'll just spend an hour together each week now watch what it does it takes people who have good deep godly lives and it puts them in a situation where they're at high need high touch they're actually spending time with people that their mothers told them to avoid then because mentoring is one of the most preemptive ways to change a child's future it's a form of justice the indianapolis star tells us a couple years ago that if a child is receiving mentor in a public school it increases the chance that he or she will graduate by 70% now think about that the chance that that child graduates from high school goes up almost twice if you just put a good mentor with them. Now watch this. A friend of mine who works in social services tells me about a year ago that the average cost of a person who does not graduate from high school, they will cost the state on average $875,000 by the time they die. So even if you don't like kids, you like money. Do you see what this is doing? By increasing the chance they graduate, you preempt all kinds of problems. And you create for that child an entirely new future. I have another one. It's, the v, it's, it's first response. This is stuff like the VIP. If you're a guy, you can't be involved in the VIP. But women can. But you must not go down by yourself. Last year we had some college kids said, well, let's just charge the VIP. You almost. It, I mean, that was a really rough time. It took some, some work to get them back on board. So please don't do that talk to the people in charge at our church and we'll find ways to get you involved but there's other ways in our community in public schools or in other neighborhoods that again are high need and high impact and a first response team is often the ones we call to say there's been a crisis over here or over there would you go in as our hands and feet we'll give you the training all the coaching that you need but we need somebody to be in those situations on behalf of Jesus Christ. Do you see what that's doing? It's taking the righteousness that you have, putting you in a high-need situation, and if you can change the degree of that person's life by 10%, nothing radical, a 10% change over time is an entirely different future. I have a third one. Immigrant Connection. This winter, we'll be starting the Immigrant Connection in our church Um, it's a program for taking people that are trying to become US citizens and making them legal I just talked to uh, someone from the Hispanic community after uh, church in the first hour you guys and she said my husband is still trying to become legalized and you have wait for it one year to be legalized I said, how long have you been waiting? She said, four and a half years. So you understand that when a system says, you have 12 months to legalize, but the system takes four and a half years to work, the system is, shall we say, jacked up. But you can't just go in and do what you want. You have to find ways of abiding by the law and making people legalized so imagine a Fox News watcher with all the rhetoric all the righteousness traveling to Mexico and having a conversation with Gabriel in the front of his two-bedroom house it's about 800 square feet how many people live here Gabriel he says seven. I said, you must be sleeping all over. He says, no, we all sleep in one of the two rooms. Uh, He said, I hope we can get more. That's the way we do this. I said, where do you work? He said, in the United States. I said, how do you do that? He said, I go across the border, and I work in Texas. And the moment he says this, I'm imagining Every white middle-class American born into privilege thinking, "Ah!" He says, you have to understand, I work in concrete, and if I work in concrete in Mexico City, I make $80 a week. But if I work in Texas, I make $800 a week. And so what I do is, I pay someone $6,000 to smuggle me across the line, and I stay in Texas For more than a year. So I can make as much money as I can. Send it back to the house. And then I come back for a few months. I am now on furlough. You'll be going back, I said. He said, most definitely. When I tell the story to Pastor Alex, he's concerned. But he's not worried that he's breaking the law. That's another concern. And a legitimate one. But it's not his main concern. He says, my main concern is he may wind up either hijacked or dead. He said, Steve, what you may not know is that the drug cartel in Mexico is no longer making most of its money on drugs. You think they are, but the reality is they've become sophisticated. They now make most of their money on two other ways. One is through sex trafficking and the other is through smuggling people across the border. And the way that they do this sometimes is they get people to pay them $6,000, they put them in the back of a semi, drop them off somewhere in desolate Mexico, and tell them they're in the United States, we've done our job, good luck. And in other cases, they don't even drop them off, they kidnap them and then go back to the families and ask for a ransom. So now the family that cannot even hardly feed itself must find a way to pay ransom for the one who is trying to help them. My fear, he said, is not that he will be caught. My fear is that he will be killed. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to change your rules and your convictions about immigration. But I am telling you that you have to season them with conversations with people who are legitimately in need. Until that time, they are just convictions. So immigrant connection is a way to say we can take lay people with no training in law at all and we can hook them up with educated, trained people who can teach us how to create, how to legally advise people who want to become legal citizens. You say, I'm not a lawyer, that's perfect, that'll help you. You might be too technical, really. You'll get all bogged down in the footnotes. And we just need ordinary people to say, I can do that. I want to help advise people. We need people who can come and translate from Spanish. We need people who can come alongside and just mentor families. Look, look, I've given you different ways that you can be involved in the church and I realize so many of you right now have heard opportunities your whole life and I know some of you are just tired of more ways to be involved. So maybe for you this morning, it's baby steps. Maybe for you, it's just saying, God, I'm tired and I am thin and I, I can't do everything he's saying right now but I can do a little bit and I don't know what it's gonna mean or how it helps or I can't figure that out, but I'm willing just to give you my little bit and I ask you to do something with it. That, that, it, it you guys, if that's as far as you go, that is perfect. Love, I love that. Others of you are sitting there saying, no, I think I got something left. I think I wanna invest in something and I would ask you to prayerfully consider first steps in one of these three ways that I just outlined. Would you bow your head?